the European Union weary of the financial and political costs of dealing with an endless flow of migrants from Africa has chosen to outsource the often dirty work of immigration enforcement. The calculus is crude and clear. The EU has moved its southern border into Africa. Europe has spent hundreds of millions of dollars since 2015 to police this newly created southern border. Portions of this investment have gone to rebuild and retrain the Libyan Coast Guard, which has been tasked with catching migrants moving north from West Africa. But those millions have also gone to help prop up the operation of what has become a modern-day gulag of prisons in Libya, where the captured migrants are sent. That music you just heard is a clip from a song called Aliou's Journey which is a piece of music inspired by a piece of journalism. The journalism is by the journalist Ian Urbina, and it ran in The New Yorker this week, and it's about a series of prisons in Libya housing European migrants. So a bit more background on Ian, who's an investigative journalist who long worked for The New York Times. He wrote a book that's amazing called The Outlaw Ocean. And now he runs a journalism nonprofit called The Outlaw Ocean Project, which helped produce this piece. It's a new way to think about how to go about long-form investigations and how to sort of tell the story in different ways and how to get it out to a very, very broad audience, even more broad than you could get at The New York Times or The New Yorker. It was a fascinating conversation about the piece itself, but also about a new way to think about journalism. I'm really happy to welcome Ian Urbina on The Kicker. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to talk, obviously, about this Libya migrant story, but I got to say, and, and my colleagues at CGR will back me up, like, I talked for weeks about the Outlaw Ocean book hmm. um, when, when I first read it. I thought it was amazing. Amazing Thanks. piece of reporting and just an amazing window into a world that I knew nothing about that was just so fascinating. Um, and, and I noticed that this, that this project on the, the migrant story that you just published was, was part of a, an effort with the Outlaw Ocean Project. What is it? Just tell me about, I mean, I, I'm really interested in how you decided to start something like this and how, you know, what is the nature of it? How many people, how do you go about your projects? Tell me a little bit about that first. Yeah, so the Outlaw Ocean Project is a nonprofit journalism organization. It's sort of modeled after ProPublica and, you know, the Marshall Project, a boutique, you know, long-form investigative narrative uh, work. Its focus is, um, you know, uh, broadly the two-thirds of the planet that's water and, and um, the human rights, labor, and environmental concerns that exist out there, um, which gives you wide um, sway in terms of topics. Uh, we have a staff of 10 at this point. Um, we fund our own stories and then, um, take them out to venues globally. And one of the reasons I, I was at the New York times for 17 years. And, um, one of the reasons I, I wanted to leave and, and start this crazy thing was, um, I wanted to do some things differently with uh, the kinds of stories I, I liked producing. I, I, I wanted to get them consumed more widely globally. So in more languages and in more venues if possible. Um, 
And to do that, I probably needed to sort of change the rules of engagement with editors and venues and say, look, I'll offer you this content for free, but you won't own the copyright and you also won't have it exclusively. Um, uh, all you have to do is maybe handle translation if we don't do it, but you also have to just agree to our terms. We'll work with you maybe to some degree on editing, but um, uh, we uh, will bring you really great content if, uh, if you're interested. And, um, and then we also, the other big reason I wanted to leave and what we wanted to do differently at the Outlawish Project was we wanted to take, give the stories more lives and do that by converting them in different forms. So from written to animation, from animation to music, from music to mural, you know, really think daringly about cool collaborations that we could do so that maybe we might get broader reach and maybe even also break into younger demographics by transforming the journalism. How's it funded? Uh, so multiple ways. Uh, the big funding comes from non from uh, philanthropic groups. So specifically Bloomberg Philanthropy, Schmidt Marine, which is Eric Schmidt, you know, kind of Google money. Um, Tiffany's Foundation, uh, and then a bunch of smaller ones. All of it, we, we really actually hired away one of my former journal, journal journalism, my former editor at the New York Times is this guy named Joe Sexton, who then went to from the New York Times to the to ProPublica, and now he works with me. And and you know, um, I really studied how ProPublica does things closely to figure out how to construct the firewall on funding so that your journalism is independent and safe and isn't influenced by funders. And so we mimic that. And um, a lot of our funders are actually similar to theirs. But uh, bulk of it right now, I'd say 60% comes from philanthropic um, funders. And then some of it comes, increasing amount comes from this music project we have, where we have you know, 500 musicians from all these countries that make music from the reporting uh, and the streaming revenue from the music uh, um, goes into the nonprofit to fund more stories. And so that's actually starting to work um, and help uh, float the boat. And then uh, the last portion is from individual subscribers, you know, via Substack and just um, readers that think what we do is worthy and they donate. It's so interesting that... Um... I mean, here you were at the New York Times, which I think probably now on on Earth has the most expansive journalistic platform out there. Um, it's so interesting that even though you were there, you decided that it was somewhat limiting in terms of um, the reach that you wanted, but also in the way that you wanted to tell the stories. Um, you know, I guess I, that's just the thought i mean does that um and what does that and what does that mean for people down the food chain who mm -hmm. work for smaller places and what are their options well i mean i i think um th that question almost has two parts the first part is sort of why would you leave a place with such a huge megaphone and grab at a bigger one um and i think the answer to that is you know my 17 year old son will not read what I write for the New Yorker or the New York Times. And he's a smart kid and consumes all sorts of news, right? But he consumes it in other ways on other platforms. And that just sort of irked me. And the more I studied who was reading the stuff I was producing for the Times, the more I was convinced that 
younger folks and non-English folks globally were not uh, consuming the journalism. And um, so I, I wanted to think of other ways to get at younger folks and non-English folks. Um, and music and Spotify and you know, alternate platforms like that were, um, was one uh, step in that direction. Um, to, to revisit your question, I think what lesson, if any, might there be or thought might there be for all journalists, whether they're at a big or small venue, about notions of um, accessing bigger or different audiences in new ways. I don't really think that, I don't think the New Yorker, the New York Times part is relevant. I think like it, it's a cultural barrier to a large degree, an intellectual barrier that exists, which is um, thinking about, I have a story, I want certain readers, how do I get at them? Whether you work for the Times or you work for the Tulsa world, you know, or, or some small paper, um, that predicament is the same. Probably neither your employer nor you on your own are accessing those folks. So you got to kind of think of other ways to get at them. And the internet is a really democratizing force that's really killed us in the legacy journalism realm, but it's also offered huge opportunities for daring new things like this. So I guess I would say, you know, uh, you know, if, if, if you're open to thinking about creative ways of collaborating and interacting with other platforms for your stories, then um, there's a good chance that you can pull it off. Yeah. I mean, everything you says make, say makes sense and I understand it, but it, it is sort of maddening that um, some of these legacy brands aren't doing more of this thinking mm. themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I'm, I'm not asking you to like take a swipe at the times of the New Yorker who are great in their own right, but they should be doing the same stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they're not, so it's frustrating. It's frustrating to me. Um, yeah. Do you have a sense of uh, on this, on the, on the piece that you wrote on Libya? Like, I mean, one of the things we, as you were talking about this, I was thinking, wow, you know, it would be really cool if this story could reach, I mean, obviously it'll reach policymakers and it'll reach uh, NGOs who are involved in this world, but it'd be great if you could reach, you know, the migrant communities that are affected by, mm -hmm. by this thing. Do you have a sense of whether, whether you're able to do any, do that at all in, in terms of these other modes of outreach that you use? I think so. I mean, it's early days yet, right? So I can't say with the confidence of data behind me, but, but um, look, I mean, we, this story, um, the Libya piece, today published in Russian, yesterday published in Colombia, the day before that in Argentina at the major newspapers, before that at El País in Spain and El Diario, the ma major newspapers there. And in the next two weeks, it'll publish in um, newspapers in Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, Libya, and on radio in Guinea-Bissau, where our main character is from, mm -hmm. and in Kenya. and stuff. So because we broke the rules and wrote our own when it comes to ownership and IP, that's really the cut of the Gordian knot right there. If, if you can pull that off, then um, – and pull that off means – if you can maintain access to tier one venues like the New Yorker while also not giving up your rights to take the stuff to all the other venues, then, then you're 80% downfield. You know, you, you, you then have to build the relationships with the other venues and that's not easy. I mean, I have a person who that's all she does all day long is try to find 
collaborators in these countries, be they in radio or web only or magazine or newspaper or whatever, and vet them and then lay down our ground rules. You can't touch our copy, et cetera, et cetera. And if they agree, then now we're into a market we never would have accessed. And so far it's it's working. And and again, the music project is interesting too, because we've we've had interesting success in play, like Gambia, you know, I had this New Yorker piece nine months ago about Gambia and um, the biggest rapper in Gambia um, had rapped about some of the issues that we were, that I was writing about. And I got in touch with him and he's huge in Gambia and he raps in Mendinka and he can fill a stadium in Gambia. He's no one on Spotify and mm. West. And, and so I said, look, would you partner with me, write a song or three and, uh, in Mandinka and let's do something neat to get you known in the Western world on Spotify and the like, but also get this content over into Gambia. And that began this really cool relationship where now we have a publishing partner and he's putting out the album. And so there's just funny ways that you can break into these zones that otherwise are ignored. I think. Did, um, is, was this an easy, um, sell to the New Yorker to get them to agree to, these other to let these other places have access to the piece. I think if you look up rhetorical question, that one is what you'll. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> um, and you're trying to get me in trouble with Condé Nast. No, I mean it was not easy. They, they, they were great. I mean, incredible. Like I, I cannot say, and I'm not just saying this. It it, it happens to be true. Um, this story. And the whole experience has been nothing but amazing and they've been supportive and flexible, but it was a process to get, you know, my agent and our lawyers um, on the same page with Condé Nast lawyers, the owner of New Yorker, um, about this exclusivity. And, um, but, uh, but in the end they, they agreed. And, and, and I think, I hope also, I, I mean, I, I should confess there's also a, the editor of the web at the New Yorker is a, a a friend and he started the same day as me at the New York times. I started the same day as him, Mike Luo. Uh, one of our editors is David Rode. Um, he is a former New York times guy, my colleague, Joe Sexton, former New York times guy. Um, and, uh, and there are several others who were in the mix who are also former. So there was a bunch of folks who knew each other already. Um, but the bottom line is I think, um, the traffic on the story to the New Yorker has been great, partially because of a lot of the foreign non-English versions. And so my hope is that they see that there isn't the existential threat if they would uh, bend their thinking, sort of evolve their thinking about uh, copyright and intellectual property and exclusivity on the Internet and think in new ways. They could actually, in the rising tide raises all ships sort of thought. Um, I think is playing out well on this story. So something you said about um, people couldn't edit it. So are the people running this story um, outside the U.S., are they running verbatim the New Yorker story? It varies. So we have a serialized version of it um, uh, that we edited in-house, Joe Sexton handled, um, because some places just can't afford a 10 K 10,000 word real estate in a print or yeah. even online. Um, and then we have a eight, a, a 80% length version that we edited, but we handled all the editing in house. And then we said, okay, 
what size fits your needs. And then if there are language issues, then we we work through those together. But there's no, but they are running versions of our stories, the one that ran on our site. Um, and most of them are running the verbatim version in other languages. And some, after a certain period, will be running it in English in full form as well. And is it all, I mean, the, the ProPublica model, is it sort of um, Creative Commons in a way, free, people don't pay? Is that the case with you, with this with this story? It is, yeah. And much like ProPublica, because I know, um, having met with them and gotten guidance from them, um, we have the exact same model where the default is not to pay. With some partners, Le Monde Diplomatique, for example, or Der Spiegel, um, they say, look, or El Pais, you know, they said, um, we would like to put something up. You know, this is expensive. This story took $250,000 to produce. And, you know, so we say, you know, look, if you would like to contribute something because you think this is such a great thing, that would be great. We'd happily take it, but you don't need to pay anything. Yeah. I mean, clearly I'm fascinated by the journalistic model discussion here, but I got, you know, we, I would be remiss not to talk about the piece itself, which is amazing. Um, and which was brave on your part. You ended up getting, um, detained in, um, in Libya. Um, and not to mention your subject that you mentioned, whose name is Eliu Kande, who suffered immensely, um, ultimately with his life about, around what was happening with, um, his effort to, to go to Italy. Um, I mean, what was maddening to me about the piece um, was this kind of, I mean, and you spent a, a lot of the reporting was um, focused on the EU's funding of um, this horrific prison in Libya um, and this kind of fig leaf that um, that Europe had, you know, around like, well, we care about migrants and we want to be we want to be humane, but then they are funding, you know, all the way down to the actual mattresses in these places. Um, and, 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 and it has enabled them to sort of turn, to keep a public face saying one thing, but then, um, in actuality doing something entirely different. And it reminded me a lot of your other reporting around on the outlaw ocean book, where you have, you know, examples of, of people like pretending that this stuff isn't going on where they actually know, either whether it's about slavery or it's about sexual abuse or whatever in, in these places. So I, I read a, a Twitter thread and you talked about how you sort of pieced together some of the funding part of this mm -hmm. um, in which, you know, and, and a lot of it, you, you, you sort of, I thought humbly talked about like, well, we just sort of connected the dots here. Um, it wasn't really humble, but, but do you know what I mean? I mean, like, like mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about, how much of this was sort of out in the open? Yeah. And how much yeah. of it you had to sort of like use other ways to piece together? I mean, there are a couple of things I would say before I answer the question. One is I think you're really right to point at this, this mushy, difficult to grasp thing that is plausible deniability. You know, that is the sort of ubiquity or the sort of diffuse nature of some of the worst kinds of evil. Those are the hardest ones to really like, put to words and to pin down. And um, the Outlaw Ocean struggled with that a little bit and tried to wrestle the greasy pig. Um, and here too, I think the greasy pig was what you said. On the one hand, there's a legitimate point that the EU makes that they are putting a lot of money towards the reduction of harm to, 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 to people that are not their own, right? That are heading their way. 
and that is not untrue. At, at, the, at the same time, what is equally and in, in some ways more relevant and true is that they're putting huge amounts of money towards a war on migration that has an air force, a navy, and an army. And the air force is the Frontex, you know, EU border agency that patrols the skies over the Mediterranean with drones and aircraft and identifies the rafts and the boats and, you know, puts the intel in the hands, usually through an intermediary, in the Libyan Coast Guard hands. That's the Navy, the Libyan Coast Guard proxy force that brutally isn't rescuing folks. It's capturing, arresting, and returning to shore these, you know, tens of thousands of migrants. And then the Army is on, in this war is on land, and it's this huge grid that's well-financed and organized of prisons for keeping these migrants there where awful, awful things happen. And I think like the, the EU and key players in the EU, member states and the EU commission routinely say, we don't fund the prisons. Okay, but that's not the point. You fund the raison d'etre for the prisons and the whole infrastructure that puts people in the prisons. And you're, you're engaging in a sleight of hand here that for too long, um, I think reporters and everyone else haven't really been able to pin down. And that's the greasy pig that we were trying to like really once and for all pin down. The, 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 the reporting, um, yeah, it, it was brutal. I mean, um, the, the, just the connecting of the dots. Um, it's all out there, as you well know. There's so much information out there. Um, but connecting the tenders and the purchase records to the specific uses um, was a process that took a lot of time. And it was you know, piecemeal, you know, um, okay, we have a order here that we pinned down that EU funds went to this UN agency to purchase the body bags where the dead migrants go. Okay, now we got to pin down that the body bags are actually used by the migrants that end up in detention centers, not somewhere else. And, you know, sort of, and for each thing, the SUVs and the, the tablets the electronic tablets that are used at the ports by UN officials, IOM, migration officials, um, to count the migrants that are returned by the Libyan Coast Guard before they are put on EU purchased buses to take them to the prisons. Like each one of those things was, you know, um, quite a process. Um, and this is where credit to the New Yorker and our editor in particular, a guy named Namal, you know, he just kept pushing us and pushing us and pushing us to do more of that dot connecting, which was, I think, um, part of what made um, the piece that much more rigorous. But yeah, it was labor intensive. Yeah. And this was something actually, I've actually heard you talk about um, on some of, you know, when you when you were reporting on uh, piracy or you were reporting on people who run these basically slave ships, um, the journalism can get frustrating because it's hard to find people to blame. Like, I mean, there's all these shell companies and there's, and I remember there was a scene in the book where you show up at the house of somebody who was running one of these shipping companies or something. And there's a guy who you can sort of say, this is the villain, but there it's slippery and it's elusive. Um, mm -hmm. um, what was I going to say? Oh, so, and so the, the, this piece was a, was a, was a, was a combo of this kind of connect the dots funding reporting, but then like, you know, you, you, you all were there, you actually launched a drone to like film the, the yard where these people are being held so people could see it. Um, and then you, then you actually did get detained after you went 
back and forth. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me is that like, as the profile of this kind of piece goes up, it's going to be harder for you to do this kind of reporting and not attract attention. Do you think? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that I, I hope, I, yeah, I, I don't know that I'm, uh, that I agree. I, I think that people's memories are very short and bylines yeah. for the most part are just a couple words you don't tend to pay attention to. And, um, you know, look, we were in detention in pretty brutal situation and the interrogation, they were convinced that I was a CIA team leader and, mm -hmm. you know, hours upon hours of these detention sessions, gun on the table and we're going to kill you and all sorts of bad stuff. And I kept saying, I am a journalist. If you would just get on Google and search me, like mm -hmm. I, I swear to you, I'm a journalist. You can see me all over the internet for better or for worse but that's one undeniable fact about me and so you know in the places where you might be worried as a journalist my sense is that the cacophony of the internet works in your favor mm. and the barriers of foreign language work in your favor and you're just a westerner you're not a specific journalist. You're just a journalist. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I um, for one, I've seen Argo. Um, That's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where they create this. Anyway, I just think that the um, um, the kind of like the, there's so many uh, uh, the the disinformation campaigns have grown super sophisticated, and there's a lot of people. I mean, we at CGR have just done a whole series of pieces about pop-up sites that look like local news sites but they're actually mm. not they're actually mm. funded they're actually political campaigns um so i think it's actually making it harder for journalists to sort of like mm -hmm. people to believe them you know what i mean yeah yeah well interesting along those lines to, to sort of u-turn and support your notion you know i said look if you don't believe me could you just look up the wikipedia page about me and mm -hmm. you can check there and the translator said, whatever you do, don't mention Wikipedia. You, they will kill you on the spot. And, and I said, why? And he said, because Wikipedia has been used, is viewed here in Libya as, you know, a, a complete Western ruse of misinformation. Wow. So, so know, interesting. I didn't know that. Have you heard that before? I had never heard that before. I'd never heard that. I wow. never read a story about people suspecting that Wikipedia is somehow a sort of u.s mouthpiece or whatever i'd never heard that wow um so after the piece ran um the european center for constitutional and human rights um put out a press release um about this and i think um there's been a uh brief filed with the international criminal court right mm -hmm. um but and i read some of this stuff and but i guess i'm just cynical partly because of your reporting about um, whether whether Europe's really going to reckon with this. I mean, what is your sense about whether whether there's going to be real change in, in EU funding, for instance? You know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a cynic with you just by default, but um, I'm also hopeful uh, sometimes. And I think that, you know, yesterday there was a, parliamentarian in the Dutch equivalent of the parliament's probably got a special name. I don't know it, but, and then the day before 
Irish, you know, anyway, I mean, this is just polls at the mic, right? You know, this is, um, you know, politicians seizing on the journalism to amplify quite possibly a correct point they've been making for a long time about the deep problems with the way that taxpayer money is being used to facilitate indirectly sometimes crimes against humanity. Um, uh, whether that amounts much, I don't know. What, um, uh, so honestly, I, I, I lean towards the cynical that there'll be a flurry of some sort of action, you know, and rhetoric, and it'll fade away. Um, I do think, not to tout our own strategic horn, but I am a believer in the logic of the strategy of getting this stuff into the native publications, into yeah. the native language, in the in lots of places around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that heightens the chances that it'll have a longer life and more firepower politically to change things. Mm-hmm. Ian, it's great to talk to you. My pleasure. Um, good luck um, on follow-up on this. Um, you can read his piece in the, it's the December 6th print issue of The New Yorker on the secret of prisons that keep migrants out of Europe. Um, I suggest that you buy the Outlaw Ocean book on Amazon. Um, At CJR, you can follow our ongoing media coverage at CJR.org, our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next week.